Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to come together as your people to learn and grow. Help us do so this morning as we think further about our families and raising our children, and in particular, our teenagers. We pray your blessings on them. We love them. We know you love them. And we pray you'd be at work in all these relationships so that uh, we might continue to advance your kingdom from generation to generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Lesson 18 in our series on child training, and it's our fourth lesson on teenagers. We looked last week using uh, Paul David Tripp's book, The Age of Opportunity, as our base, and I'm relying heavily on the outline and material that he's provided. I found it very helpful for me to think through these issues, and so I'm using his points or his goals, and we looked at last time uh, two of the goals, focusing on, number one, focusing on the spiritual struggle, and second, developing a heart of conviction and wisdom. Today, we're going to look at the third one, which is understanding and interacting redemptively with the culture. In a previous lesson that I taught on family culture, I quoted Peter Drucker, who said, that culture uh, eats strategy for breakfast. So we can have all the plans we want and all the big ideas we want, but our culture, our liturgy, if you will, the way we do things day after day, our routines, that culture will trump that. Uh, it has, so we have to take our ideas. We have to take the things the Bible teaches us and we have to enculturate them. We have to make them part of the culture. They have to be seen in the things we do. So if prayer is a part of our culture, then we have to be seen praying. We have to be heard praying. We have to actually do that. If the Bible is central to our instruction, then we have to be using the Bible when we have issues come up and so forth. So having ideas that are set over to the side is not enough. They have to become part of the culture of our family if they're going to get into the bones, if you will, of our children. They can't just be drug out on occasion or special occasions uh, like Sunday mornings. They, they have to be there all the time. I pointed out that your family has a culture and that, in fact, that is an inescapable concept. So you have a culture. Now it's a question, is it biblical? Does it reflect the Word of God? It's only a question of what kind of culture you have, and the culture that you're currently cultivating will be multiplied and perpetuated in future generations. It's the default that your children will take with them when they start their households. And so if they don't think about it, and it's possible that people can change a culture and self-consciously implement new things, in fact, that's what I'm calling on you to do, but if that doesn't happen, then the default position will be whatever you grew up with. That's how we solve problems. That's how we handle this or that situation. Uh, and that will just spill over uh, from generation to generation, whether it's good or not so good. Uh, in every place where your family culture is sub-Christian, that will be passed along unless someone intentionally interrupts it and replaces it with a biblical culture. Of course, there is also a culture out there, out there in the world. And that culture can also eat your strategy for breakfast. 
You can have all the best plans in the world, and if you then turn your kids over to an alien culture, an alien culture that's very much after your children, in fact, it's not just out there, it's constantly pressing inward, trying to get into your house. It has all kind of portals that it uses nowadays with electronic devices or televisions and used to be radios and newspapers and books. There's always been this outside seepage into our homes. It's just gotten bigger and more subtle and more attractive and, um, and comes in a lot of different forms. And if you're not aware of that, then that culture, again, sneaks in, as it were, uh, through the back door. Uh, and it's there whether we're aware of it or not. And so before we can cultivate or combat outside culture, uh, we have to cultivate cultural awareness. This is the kind of cultural awareness that has to do with the way spiritual war is being waged and played out. If we're not aware that there is a war, then we're, we've already lost. We, we we're already defeated. And if we understand that it's war, it's, we're not playing around here, this is everything is at stake, uh, then... We, then we can begin to think about uh, how to go about engaging in that. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7 warns us, Only be strong and very courageous. Boy, when a passage starts that way, um, it's going to take strength and courage to do what we're about to say here. Uh, Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. And so there are ditches on either side of us. And so the problem is, uh, or the the declaration here is, that we're to avoid both ditches. We can't say, well, I'm going to err on the conservative side. No, you can't err. That's error. That's a ditch. You can go one way or the other in extremes, uh, and our goal, our objective, is to avoid both of those ditches. When it comes to our response, uh, the culture of the world, uh, excuse me, when it comes to our response, the culture of the world, uh, our, our family's culture must avoid these two ditches, I think, in particular. First is isolation, and um, Paul David Tripp uses two families, the Smiths and the Joneses. So the Smiths isolate themselves, and the Joneses go the other direction, and theirs, their approach is assimilation to the culture. And so you can usually spot these families uh, by the way they dress, and they usually, while they may like each other, they don't understand each other. They come from, they have a, uh, two very different approaches to what their family cultures are in response to the world's culture. And so the Smith's response to culture is, re- is rejection and isolation. Their basic philosophy is this. Evil is in the thing, so avoid the thing. A list of things to avoid is developed. Maybe movies and music and certain clothing or whatever. It could be... It could be a long, pretty long list, actually. The secular world must be avoided wherever possible. This approach has several inherent, inherent dangers. It might falsely assume that the problems are external 
instead of matters of a sinful heart. And I've, I've seen this quite a bit, actually. The primary issue, though, is always the human heart, because that's where the war is fought. And so we think, well, if we'll just eliminate all these things that are evil, then we will have good children, right? They will be pure as the driven snow. And my child will never lie and never do anything naughty or nasty uh, because they will have been protected from that evil culture out there. And again, the temptation or the, the problem there is, this, is a sin of presumption. You've assumed that the locus of the problem is out there when in fact it's in a sinful heart. Um, the isolationist approach tends to promote a dangerous self-righteousness that is equated with keeping the list. And again, I've seen far too many families who have presumed that they've solved the problem of worldly cultural influence because they've kept their children from it, only to have it erupt uh, it, from their children's hearts right under their noses in the upstairs bedroom while mom's downstairs preparing dinner. The Smiths have not prepared their children to obey Christ's call to be salt and light in a corrupt and darkened world. So that's one problem. Now the Joneses, the Joneses react to this by falling into the ditch on the other side, the ditch of assimilation. Their philosophy is different. It's this. Things are neutral. So there is no harm in participating in the thing. However, the Bible teaches that nothing is ever neutral. In this world, everything carries some moral freight. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. In other words, it has to be a positive for him or else it is against him. And so as we consider the world where there is no neutrality, we have to remember that all the facts, none of the facts are neutral, all the facts have to be interpreted by somebody, by somebody's worldview. Everything can be used for good or evil. I don't care what, a, a tool, you can use a hammer for good, or you can kill somebody with it. That's true for guns, that's true for televisions, that's true for iPhones, that's true for all kinds of devices. All kinds of things can be used for good or evil. What's the difference? Where is the difference? Is it in the thing or is it in the person? How it's used. Every culture ultimately has a creator God. Some basic authority, some ultimate authority. The Joneses have not prepared their children to analyze or evaluate their culture, and therefore, like the Smiths, neither are they equipped to be salt and light. The danger in, in the assimilation model is, that the is the false assumption of neutrality, and that has devastating consequences. So how are we to stay out of the two ditches of isolation and assimilation? As we see so often in the Bible, wisdom is more complicated than a list. It's not simple. It, it takes thought and prayer, and it takes a community. It takes a lot of things, all the Word of God brought to bear on the subject, not just picking and choosing uh, particular pieces of it. So I want to assert that Christianity 
Uh, even though there have been variants uh, throughout history, uh, we see it in the New Testament with Gnosticism that have attempted to influence Christianity in another direction, Christianity itself is world-affirming. God made the physical world, he made the spiritual world, uh, and he made them with the ability, uh, he made us physical and spiritual with the ability to interact with the world that he made. And we do so, as we do so, we reflect his image, and we exercise dominion over the earth. Uh, Subduing the earth involved, of course, an active relationship with the world. Genesis 1, 26-31, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, and you shall, it shall be for you as food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God made the material world. He made the spiritual world, and he declares that they were all good. So the thing in itself, the things, are not evil. The problem is elsewhere. The fall corrupted the creation, but it did not eliminate our mandate to rule the world. Sinful culture is the problem, but the gospel, the gospel is about redemption and redemption of the world, not just personal redemption, but also cultural redemption. Hopefully that has already begun in your own life, your personal culture in Christ and in your family. You have a Christian family, a biblical household, a a church. Our church is the beginning of that picture, that image of us coming together and rebuilding a culture that praises God, that worships, worships the true God, that repents of sin, that grows in maturity and grace that serves and loves one another as we were intended to do so that we go out and begin to, as we're going to hear in the sermon today, to be salt and to be light in a dark world, to transform the culture. Since the fall, cultures are based on many and varied competing authorities. This is now one of our primary moral struggles, and of course it is inescapable. Teenagers need to grow up understanding this and be prepared for it. It is your job, parents, and I'll just speak to us collectively as a church, uh, it is our job to prepare them. We either interact with the world in a spirit of submission to God and his word, or we do it in submission to some other authority. The cultural struggle is always about good and evil, true and false, right and wrong, belief and unbelief. 
And so, isolation is impossible and assimilation is capitulation. It's giving in. And as parents, then, we are often tempted to blame the vehicle rather than to focus on the idols these vehicles promote. The various vehicles are things like government, music, movies, magazines, internet, education, television, etc. All promote and transmit the philosophy of a culture. Like other tools, they are not bad in themselves, but rather in how they are used. Now, let's think about what culture does. Again, learning to think about these things. We talked last time about us trying to go on a vacation without knowing where we're going or how long we're going to be gone or how much it's going to cost. We wouldn't do that. And yet, a vacation is for a week or two weeks and here we are raising kids, and we don't give it near as much thought as we give our two-week vacation. Culture, whatever kind of culture it is, will set the pace for life. The pace of life in our culture right now is directly related to what the culture thinks is important. Our pace is the result of a culture that has placed its emphasis on acquiring things, and achieving as two of its high, highest values. We become part of a system of, uh, in a kind of an automatic way, that is, without thinking. Um, so just as an example, I was having a conversation a few weeks ago with someone, and we were talking about college, and there was a, kind of this assumption that we've all come to have, right? Everybody goes to college. Now, that wasn't true with my dad and his generation, uh, so oftentimes you'd hear somebody from my dad's generation say something like, I was the first one from our family to go to college. So the idea of you know growing up and reaching some age in which everybody went to college, this is a relatively new cultural thing, but that's where we're at. It's just kind of assumed. Which, so the question isn't, are, is not, are you going to college? It's, which college are you going to? Have you begun your applications? And so there's an assumption, a cultural assumption, that this is just what we do. And it's good to go back and rethink some of those assumptions. Is college really for everybody? Is it the best use of your money and time? Are there other possibilities? And so, again, the point in this lesson is not to take off on that. I'm just using that as one illustration of how cultures can develop and then assumptions get plugged in and we tend to just follow along in an unquestioning way uh, with whatever everybody else is doing. But it does dictate our pace, and oftentimes we don't ask how it enslaves us or serves us. We're not asking enough questions. Second, culture will set the agenda for life. An agenda is a plan. It's what we're doing and why, and it always expresses our priorities and values. So what are the priorities of our culture? And my quest, more important question is, are those priorities different than your priorities? And an even more important question is, how different are they from biblical priorities? Are they the same? Do we have the right priorities? Uh, Paul David Tripp writes this, Our culture is always expressing its perspective on what is important, what is of value, and what is, quote, true. 
For example, when your teenager can watch a week of television sitcoms, dramas, newscasts, talk shows, and topical magazine shows, and never hear God mentioned or the Bible included in the debate, the culture is powerfully telling him what is important and what is not. Imagine the influence of television on a teenager who watches it three hours a night, 21 hours a week. That equals nearly 7,700 hours over his teen years. During these hours of cultural bombardment, he is usually relaxed and not thinking critically. He is breathing in the cultural air with little thought of protection. It would be the height of naivete to think that he will remain uninfluenced. The view of life given to him will influence his life view and his life plan if he uncritically breathes in the culture and accepts its priorities. How many families uh, are, so, are so committed to the teaching, um, relationships, worship, fellowship, and ministry of the local church that they would refuse a job, a promotion, or a job offer if they were not first assured that a church of equal value was there first? And to carry it over, too often we send our teenagers to college without ever considering what church they will attend and be influenced by. They will definitely be influenced by the college. But the church, if it's thought of at all, is often an afterthought. They assume, well, we can find a church. Churches are easy. Colleges, that's hard. We, we want to know where the best scholarship is, what the biggest football team is. We want to know... You know, what, we can, what kind of career we can have when we're done. Now, we don't know what they're teaching in the class. We don't know if it's faithful to God or not. That doesn't really matter. It doesn't cross our mind. Is it close to home? There's all kinds of issues we plug into our decision. But how many of us say, but is this going to honor God? Is this going to produce the, the godliest person, the person who's best equipped to do what they've been called to do, to be salt and light in a culture that so desperately needs it. Now, I realize today, again, we're not going into this in all of its depth. There's a lot, of, there's a lot that goes into these decisions. All I'm pointing out is so often this issue of church uh, is something that is left out. It's the job or the college that matters the most. Culture will also define the shape of our relationships. Such things as our views of authority and government, men and women and their roles, of children and the elderly, of the relationship between men and women, sexuality and family, and so forth. Culture, cultural pressure is constant. If you send your teenager off to college without their worldview intact, then do not, do not be surprised when they come back having adopted the postmodern culture, or its many variants. Being sexy will be more important than being mature for some of them, for example. Culture will also powerfully influence our spiritual life. It will either make you more or less committed to Christ. There is no neutral ground. So, for the remaining time, I want to deal with this third goal of teaching teenagers to understand and interact 
redemptively with our culture. We want to see our teenagers fully able to interact with their culture without becoming enslaved to idols. How to be in the world, but not of the world. And so the aim of their interaction is not personal pleasure and satisfaction, but rather redeeming the culture for Christ. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so in their assimilation, the Joneses lost their saltiness, and in their isolation, the Smiths hid their light. Our goal should be to avoid both of these ditches by moving out, protecting the truth, and ready to redeem. And by the way, parents... You can't do this without risk. It's scary. It's hard. It's a big old bad world out there, and it's hard to think of how we're going to get our children from, you know, the cuddly infant to the place where they are mighty warriors for God. How do we do that? That's, that's hard. It's scary. But we don't want to be afraid to set high goals, and we don't want to let the agenda be set by the reticence of our teenagers. You are still the adults and you still make the decisions. So, Tripp offers five strategies, and see if we can get through these. I think we can. Number one, prepare. The first step is to instill in our teenagers a biblical view of life. By the way, just warn you, this list is not done quickly. It is a list, but it's going to involve a lot of hard work every day over a long period of time. That's how it works. And uh, you ought to be used to that if you've gotten them to teen years. You've been doing that since they were born. But now, now the task changes somewhat. And, but but the, it's no less arduous. It's no less, it, there's no shortcuts here. So many Christian families have years of unfocused family instruction or devotions. Um, the aim, though, of all family Bible instruction must be that our children would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible's for. Everything we learn from Scripture should be attached to a biblical system of thinking. And so he gives some, a list of questions. I'm going to read them very quickly. If you like them, I can email them to you. And we're going to see they're useful not only here with your family devotion and study of the Bible, but they're going to be useful in evaluating uh, other worldviews that we're going to come into contact with. So here, here's some questions he has. What does this passage teach us about God, about his character and his plan? What do we learn about ourselves, our nature, our struggle, and the purpose of our lives? What does this passage teach us about right and wrong, good and bad, and true and false? What instruction is here about relationships, about love, authority, etc.? What does this passage teach us about life, its meaning and purpose? What does this passage teach us about the inner man, the heart, and how it functions? What do we learn from this passage that would guide the way we live and make decisions? How does this passage help us understand and critique culture? So, the first 
then is prepare. Second test. In this step, we teach our teenagers to critique, evaluate, interpret, and analyze the surrounding culture from a biblical perspective. Now, again, I hope you regularly have conversations with your kids of all ages uh, about the sermons and Bible studies on teenagers. Uh, when you go home, what did you learn from that? How did what, what was interesting and, uh, you know, bringing out the points you want to emphasize. Um, by the way, I, I, Aaron, my son, said he, they were listening to these lessons on uh, tape on the MP3s, and they played that list that I read a few weeks ago to all their kids at the dinner table and listened to some of it. And he said uh, uh, that one of them, the, the one where if you forget your stuff at home, mom's not going to bring it to school, was not very popular at the table, <laughs> at least with some of the constituents. So, uh, uh, so this is why, of course, in order to do this, we have to be well grounded in biblical knowledge. If you don't know the Bible, if you haven't taught your kids the Bible, uh, then they're not going to be able to analyze anything because they don't have the tools. They're not, they don't have the ability to do that. The easiest way to critique the various elements of culture is to apply the same set of questions that we just read uh, that you've been using to study the Bible. And in so doing, you will, under, you will expose the underlying theme to your children. So listen to a piece of, piece of music or watch a movie together and talk about what, were the, what was the worldview here? What, what were they saying about God? Was God relevant at all? What were they saying about sin in this movie? Were they glorifying it, saying it was good, or were they, was this movie pointing out, look, when you sin, really bad things happen to you? Okay? There, there's a lot there that you can use. You could, or you could just say, now we don't watch movies. Well, which one's going to be most effective? You think your kids are not going to be exposed to movies when they're grown-ups? Well, if they are, then you better get equipped to teach them how to think about them and how to evaluate them, and how to interact with the culture. Number three is uh, identify. Uh, here we teach our children to recognize common ground. There's a real temptation to think, well, all those people out there, you know, those, those are the bad people, right? Those are the unbelievers. Those are the pagans. Those are, you know, you fill in the blank. And so we get this this view that I think is a, is a bad idea and a bad thing to teach our kids because the struggles of life in this fallen world are universally experienced by all people. The difference comes in the way that we would interpret and respond to those struggles. It is, you, you think everybody feels injustice when it happens? Fear? You think they... Uh, are anxious, afraid? Do you think that they have they wrestle with bitterness and anger and the lack of forgiveness and guilt? Have they ever been hurt by somebody else? You see, we can go down a long list of things that we look at the guy next door who's not a Christian, and he's going through all that stuff too, but he's not going through it with the gospel. He's not going through it with light. And so you want to teach them. It is, it is our recognition of this common ground that moves us toward ministry to the culture. 
we want teenagers who can identify with their culture, not agreeing with its interpretation and responses, but rather identifying with its struggle. Tripp writes this, In modern rock music, we hear the cries of anger, fear, disappointment, and loneliness. We hear disillusionment and distrust. We hear of the quest for real love, the breaking of trust, the failure of friendship, family, and government. We hear of lust and greed, selfishness and hypocrisy. We share common ground even with the performer who offends us the most, who represents the very things from which we want to protect our children. Number four, decide. We want to teach our teenagers how to know when they can be redemptive participants in the culture and when they must separate from it. There's a time for both. Scripture teaches us to do both. There are boundary issues and there are wisdom issues. Require them to be part of the discussion and the thinking process. Many parents not only protect their teenagers from the world, but they block them out of the decision-making process as well. In so doing, they leave them unprepared for the many decisions that they're going to have to make as adults. These moments are opportunities to prepare your teenagers to respond with biblical wisdom to the many choices that they will have to make. And finally, number five, redeem. Here we teach our teenagers to take back turf that has been lost to the world by witnessing to the good news of Jesus Christ. You teach your children to speak up to their friends about Christ and about the Bible and about faith. I'm afraid we've kind of dropped the ball there sometimes. We kind of assume maybe it's because we don't speak up. So we're not going to expect them to do what we don't do. We're called to have a voice that's not just negative, not just speaking against something. The goal is to declare positively what God has in, had in mind when he designed things in the beginning. We're called to be part of rebuilding culture his way and to proclaim that this rebuilding can only be done by people who are living in a proper relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And we have to teach them to speak up and how, again, to interact and how to redeem and how to be wise in that, not be obnoxious in that. You know. So, for example, uh, I'll just give, close with this as one sample of how we might teach a teen. All right, you have a new job. You love the Lord. I'm, I'm glad you do. I'm glad you're faithful to Him. But you know the most important thing for you to do uh, for the next three months at your new job is to be the best worker they've ever had. Show up on time, work hard, be diligent, show respect, and you gain the reputation for being the hardest working person there. Then God may open up an opportunity for you to say something. Yes, sir. Well, I think that's an excellent question, and I think uh, partly in you know having conversations with other parents about it, but I would really urge you to get a short list of good books uh, and either listen to them or read them. I'm currently listening to Nancy Piercy's uh, Love Thy Body, and it's one of the best things I've 
listened to on this very subject. If you want a short course in how to analyze our culture uh, and, and some of the basic themes that are going on in our culture, particularly in the area of sexuality, abortion, uh, some of those things, but it carries over. It's not just those, but the implications of her teaching you how to think like a Christian uh, versus uh, the world. That would be a good one I would start with. But there's, there's a number of others. Maybe uh, we could put together a list of books to get us started. I'll, I'll try to do that, and I'd welcome input on that as well. Any other questions? I think we're at the end of the lesson. We need to go over a hymn this morning before worship but we've got a couple of minutes if you have something else. If you have a book or something that has been useful in this area, would you let me know and we'll add it to the list uh, and maybe put that, set that, send that out for everyone. Again, you have to be an active learner. You parents, it's not just your students, your kids are not just the students, you're students. You have to be students. You have to always be thinking and pushing yourself. Don't just drop them off at school or take them to church. You have to, if, for one thing, if you're growing, if you're asking these questions, if you're thinking about them, guess what inevitably comes out of your mouth at home? Hey, I read something really neat today. Let me share this with you. Let's talk about this. Uh, you're going to be motivated and energized, if you will, and informed and better equipped to do this. If you're... If you're not growing and learning and maturing yourself, then that is what you're teaching your kids. This isn't really that important. Not important for me, so it's probably not important for you. So you should always remember, we'll close with this, you're always teaching your children. 24-7. Even when you're not teaching your children, you're teaching your children. You know, it's when it's not a formal lesson, it's not a sit-down, or here, let me tell you this or that. They're watching, they're listening, they're learning, they're emulating, they're picking up the culture. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, you giving us all that we need to be able to do this job that you've given us to do. But Lord, we often neglect the tools you've given us. We don't study, we don't grow, we don't think, we don't pray, we don't rely upon the things you've given us because we grow dull so easy and grow weary in well-doing. Help us, Lord, to uh, be stirred up, to be fresh and energetic in this most important work you've given us to do, to raise our children to be adults, to be soldiers for Jesus Christ, uh, to your glory, for their good and for the good of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.